3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. Ah yes, good morning. It is just on 7am. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. My name's Evan Wallace and it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show this morning. And what a show. What a show we have lined up today. We'll be speaking with Chris Stringer from the Gungera Environment Centre about Vic Forest's alleged illegal logging and referral to IVAC. We're also talking to Sandy Roberts from La Trobe University. Some excellent news there with a big announcement on stolen wages being repaid. Have some discussions on recent changes to the ARC, the Australian Research Council, and finish by looking a little bit about what's ahead for summer and hearing the latest from the Royal Botanic Gardens. It is a beautiful, beautiful morning, 27 degrees today. I hope you all had a, a lovely weekend. I had a really, really great one. It was a busy one, a little bit hectic, and I'm sure it is hectic at this time of the year for yeah, for everyone. I know it's that sense of the year being compressed, uh, all the last minute bits and bobs, whether it's seeing friends, whether it's ticking off the list, whether it's trying to, um, I suppose, make hay while the sun shines with uncertainty surrounding Omicron infections. It is a very busy time for me. On Saturday, a huge highlight, took the train out with a few friends towards Frankston and cycled back to Melbourne via a five, six independent breweries. It was a treat. It felt like Christmas. It felt like the holidays and wonderful to see, I suppose, some of Melbourne's best when it comes to food, drink, but also most importantly, with incredible company. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. I'm Evan coming up at 7.30. Caitlin will also be joining me too. But right now, here is Life is Beautiful by Mr. Keb Moe. Cause 
Life is beautiful. Life is wondrous. Every star above is shining just for us. Life is beautiful. On a stormy night, somewhere in the world, the sun is shining bright. I get crazy, so afraid that I might lose you one fine day, and I'll be nothing but a tired old man. And I don't wanna be without you at the party, so easily forgotten. The most important thing is that I love you. I do, and I want to spend my days and nights walking through this crazy world with you. Life is beautiful, life is wondrous. Every star above is shining just for us. Life is beautiful. On a stormy night, somewhere in the world, the sun is shining bright. Join us at Edinburgh Gardens North Fitzroy and Barclay Gardens in Richmond for kids' games, sports competitions, lighting installations, relaxed live music and an outdoor cinema. This free, family-friendly event kicks off at both parks at 12 midday. Bring a picnic and ring in the new year with family and friends. Check out the full program at yarracity.vic.gov.au. And remember, City of Yarra Park streets and public spaces are alcohol-free on New Year's Eve. The City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. 
Ah, yes, it is right around the corner, New Year's Eve. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Good morning. My name is Evan. I don't know how you all feel about New Year's Eve. Sometimes I like to go into prime hermit mode and not do very much, perhaps something that's uh, a little bit yummy, have some delicious dinner, um, but definitely don't make too much of a habit of it being a very, very big one in my world. But if you are someone who likes to get amongst the festivities and celebrations on New Year's Eve, then as you just heard, City of Yarra, some fantastic events, fun, free, COVID, family safe, all the things that we like here on 3CR. And before that, you heard Keb Mo with Life is Beautiful. Wonder whether or not it's a sentiment that you're agreeing with right now. Life, beautiful, as we look around the world and see what the latest news is on Monday, the 20th of December. In The Age today, leading epidemiologists John Caldor and Greg Doré from the Kirby Institute and also Sharon Lewin, who's the director of the Doherty Institute, have called for the reimposition of social gathering restrictions in response to the Omicron variant. It's a significant development. I think if we cast our mind back to about a month ago, we were looking to this period of time where we thought that vaccination would be a buffer that would last us many, many, many months against the possibility of new lockdowns. But here in Australia, leading health experts are now once again calling for social restrictions to be put in place. I'm sure this is going to set up a really fascinating, interesting and somewhat confronting debate that Australia will have and that indeed the world is having right now as to how do we manage and how do we respond to these increasingly skyrocketing Omicron cases in the world. So yesterday, Australia recorded 3,958 COVID-19 cases in what was a record weekend for new COVID cases in the country. I think one of the things that really stands out for me too is just seeing how the spread is occurring, not just in Victoria and New South Wales, where the virus has been concentrated for so much of the pandemic, but now looking at South Australia and Queensland registering 80 and 42 cases respectively, significant number of those being of the Omicron variant. Queensland government's predicting that the Omicron variant would be the dominant strand. So we now have an entire country that is likely to be experiencing exponential COVID-19 growth this week over Christmas, framing big questions about how do we interact with one another? What are we valuing at the moment? What stress, what strain are we prepared to put on the health system? Um, where do booster shots come into the mix? It's a turning point. Uh, and um, I think at the moment has already passed as to whether or not we're going to ask that question um, if we'll live with the or accept the virus, believe that that call has been made by Australian government. So we look to vaccination and we look to the response that's happening internationally and just on vaccination. 90.4% of people aged over 16 have had two doses of a COVID-19 vaccine. That's data from COVID Live. Internationally, the situation is really grim. In Europe over the weekend, the Netherlands government announced that it would be entering a lockdown until January 14, with most shops and services closing um, over the next number of weeks. In the UK, over the weekend, 200,000 cases of COVID-19 um, and the Omicron-19 um, variant is running rampant with discussion there about the country potentially entering a two-week post-Christmas lockdown. 
Meanwhile, in low-income countries, and this is a terrible statistic and something which I wish had more attention in conversations and within the media, but in low-income countries, only 7.6% of people have received at least one dose of COVID-19 vaccine. That's according to the Our World and Data website. And thinking about what that means in terms of individual countries, only 2.6% of people have been fully vaccinated in Tanzania, 3.9% in Nigeria, and 7.7% in Ethiopia. Sticking in Ethiopia, over the weekend, the United Nations Human Rights Council voted to launch an international investigation into abuses committed in Ethiopia's 13-month-long civil war. Ethiopia has Africa's second largest population of 118 million people, and it has experienced a terrible period of fighting since late 2020 as the Tigray People Liberation Front and the Oromo Liberation Front fight with the government in the struggle for power and territory. The United Nations estimates that the conflict has killed thousands, it's displaced more than 2 million people, and has resulted in hundreds of thousands of Ethiopians being on the brink of famine. Looking internationally, but this time with some more positive news, in the United States, the US Congress has passed the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that went through on Friday. Now, despite opposition from the likes of Coca-Cola, Nike and um, Apple as well too, companies will now have to prove that goods from China's Xinjiang province have not been produced through forced labor. In Australia, there's a similar push by organisations such as Amnesty International to really overhaul and uh, reform the Customs Act to tighten rules on this front. And that work's continuing, but great to see that push within the United States against forced labour, modern slavery, when what is a awful, awful situation in the um, Xinjiang province. And closer to home, the Victorian government has announced an additional $100 million to support the logging industry um, and assist employees transition out of logging in native forests. The investment comes off the commitment in 2019 that the Victorian government would end logging in native forests by 2030. So this investment, the recommitment, has been welcomed, largely welcomed. The environmental groups who have a laser focus on the developments that are happening with this transition out are still concerned about the damage that could be done over the next eight years. And in September this year, the WA government announced that it would end native logging by 2024. So it shows that we don't need this long lead time to end logging in our beautiful native forest that are going to experience significant threats, significant risk. There's going to be huge biodiversity loss if there, um, if this transition period continues right up until 2030. And that's why today we'll be speaking with Chris Ringer from the Gungera Environment Centre about some of the alleged tactics that Vic Forests have turned to as the agonising transition to the end of native logging takes place. That is on 3CR Monday Breakfast. That's the news. My name is Evan Wallace. It's a lot to consider. Um, have a think about it. And while you do, listen to Shadows by Briggs and Troy Casadaly. And on the other side of it, you'll be hearing from Chris um, from Gecko on all the latest developments relating to Vic Forest 
It is 7.16 a.m. I see shadows on the hill Up beside the old sawmill Where my people were killed I see shadows on the hill about the first battles they can only see when they're looking down a battle i see the shadows i hear the shots i feel the spirit from the fight that never stopped they want to talk about a fight we got never stops where the bodies drop they build a fucking parking lot and they call that survival put us on a mission force fed us bubbles they put statues on our land just to worship false idols on our hands just to keep us in a cycle blood on their hands bodies at their feet and there's a warning name on hanging from the trees name for the banks rivers and the streets now the shadows never leave no justice no peace shadows on the hill up beside the old sawmill where my people were killed Briggs and Troy Cassadaly there with Shadows. What a ripper tune. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. My name's Evan Wallace. It's 7.19am. As we mentioned in the news headlines, Vic Forrest has come under significant scrutiny over, well, over its existence really, but especially over the last number of months with reports into illegal locking in some of Victoria's most pristine forests. With these reports and this concern about malpractice, there's been a referral to 
IBAC. And to look at some of these concerns and look at some of these developments, Fung, who you'll hear on Tuesday breakfast now on 3CR, but a very, very happy host from 3CR Monday breakfast over this last period of time as well too, spoke with Chris Turinga from the Gecko Environment Centre um, about all the latest developments with respect to Vic Forest and alleged illegal logging. This is 3CR. Good morning, Chris. The ABC reported on Monday that Vic Forests has been referred to both IBAC and the Victorian Ombudsman. Could you tell us how this came about? Yeah, so that was that was an announcement from Alan Sandell that, that she had put forward the, the Greens Greens MP, state MP, that um, she had made a complaint to IBAC about Vic Forest around allegations of that they had used taxpayer funds to spy on academics and forest campaigners. And then another community group, Warburton Environment, actually put forward a complaint as well to the Environment Department for failure to properly regulating logging in Victoria. Let's start with the alleged illegal logging. What's been happening there? The first, the first one, I suppose, is is the is the the recent allegations about logging on steep slopes in our water catchments, and so that's around in the Central Highlands, the Thompson Thompson Valley catchment, and basically what scientists have found is that big forests have been systematically and and widespread illegally logging forests, uh, which on steep slopes, which can impact our our water quality, and. This is this is one investigation of many many breaches which have been put forward by community groups which haven't been acted on by the environment department. So I work for Goongaroo Environment Centre and we we've put in multiple breaches of um, illegal rainforest logging in the past and none of them have been acted on, which is absolutely shocking. And and so the Office of Conservation Regulator OCR they're supposed to hold. Vic Forests Accountable, uh, according to its website, they say that their aims are to prevent harm, monitor compliance with the law and enforce the law. Um, so, you know, they investigate alleged breaches of the law and take enforcement action if needed. How come they haven't done anything? Yeah, increasingly we're kind of seeing the department bend over backwards to make excuses for Vic Forests when, when they're caught out. So another another big big allegation or big report that came out was that that Vic forests are failing to regenerate forests after logging, which is a legal requirement. And basically, when when there was a big, this big report and big expose, the department covered for Vic forests and said, oh, that it was the deer that had was grazing um, after the logging and, and basically blamed blamed the deer. And it's just one example of so many where we just see them covering for. For Vic Forest, and I mean, there there was an independent review into the department just a couple of years ago because of of their kind of failed um, failed ability to charge Vic Forest, uh, and that review found that they were no that they weren't respected or effective, and because of that review, the OCR was created. But since then, we haven't seen any changes on the ground. You know, there are still community breaches. There are still a community are bringing forward breaches. Uh, there's still these investigations and reports about, about illegal logging, and yet still nothing is being done about it. 
Um, so what? Yeah, what we've really got is just this out of control uh, logging agency going just running rampant in our forests, and the government is doing absolutely nothing to stop it. And I've read that the OCR um, and the Forest Regulation Unit in the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning have also been reported to IBAC. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So it, uh, a small environment group from Warburton called um, yeah, Warburton Environment have put forward the complaint uh, and it's threefold. It's, it's, it's looking at alleged corruption around, um, around failing to, to charge Vic Forest over the steep slopes issue, failed regeneration and also for not um, implementing the findings of the the, the Friends of the Beaters Possum Court case, which um, recently they 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 lost an application for appeal to the High Court, um, but all of the findings, the original findings from, from the case, have been upheld, and they were quite serious serious findings as well, which was that that Vic Forest uh, breached state environment laws, and so since that case, the OCR. Really, there's been on-the-ground examples of, of repeats of what they did that were directly ruled on in that court case and still um, the Environment Department haven't charged them. So that's also part of their part of their application as well to IBAC. You mentioned before that the Greens uh, put forth this application or motion um, to refer Vic Forest to IBAC because of the alleged spying or surveilling of, of protesters and environmentalists. Um, could you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so basically uh, 10 years ago they hired a private investigator to follow uh, a, a, a well-known forest forest campaigner, someone who was speaking out against the logging. Uh, and I suppose the most, the, the, the controversial thing about it is that they they're using they're a government owned agency that's using taxpayer dollars to to conduct surveillance um, on citizens and so and that's that's something that has happened historically but it's still happening it's incredibly troubling and problematic when you hear of government agencies spying on citizens have there ever been any consequences for for that behavior you say that this is this has been happening for for a number of years now. Have we ever seen uh, the Vic government or Vic Forest being held to account for for this? No, not at all. And it's 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 the job of the government to regulate their logging. But what happens is the burden is on community groups. And so at the moment, there's ten different court cases which are trying to hold Vic Forest accountable to the law, and they're put forward by environment groups, grassroots groups who are mostly volunteers and. So really, it's been left up to to members of the public who uh, who care about these forests and and are sick of seeing big forests just absolutely flaunt the law and completely ignore their obligations. Um, and so they're the ones that are holding them to to account. Yeah, who are some of these main activists or community groups? grassroots organizations who are behind some of these campaigns against Vic forests. <laughs> oh my goodness, so many. We've <laughs> um, got um there's Wildlife of the Central Highlands, um Warburton Environment, Environment East Gippsland, King Lake Friends of the Forest, Fauna and Flora Research Collective. Um I hope I haven't left anyone out. I probably have. Um 
<laughs> oh, and Alberton, friends, um, friends of Alberton West mm. as well. And so all of these cases really are, um, are people, are community groups that, that just love and care about the forest and just want to see them properly protected. And, and so they're doing a hard yards to, to protect our forest, which is really amazing, it's even inc- though they shouldn't have to. No, exactly. <laughs> and it's in- so incredibly frustrating that we're currently living through a climate crisis and yet within you know our own state, the government is hiding a lot of their illegal activity that is contributing to um to climate disasters yeah yeah it's it's something that you would see you would expect to see you know in in the amazon or in borneo or but it's happening here in victoria and it's yeah it's it's shocking i think people people will be quite quite shocked when they when they hear about it or they've seen in the news recently it's just really explosive um and and I suppose it's good that these things are finally coming to light because people, you know, the logging often does happen. It happens in areas where people don't see it or um, they do try and hide it. And now it's, the spotlight is really is really on on the government on this illegal logging, and it's just another another reason why they need to bring forward their transition out of out of logging. Twenty thirty is far far too late for our forests and our wildlife, especially if the government isn't committed to any sort of regeneration of the forest yeah (laughs) yeah that's right that's Um, right so what do you think will come from these investigations Uh, hopefully i mean i guess hopefully ibac does does do an investigation into into corruption and it'll be very interesting to see um to see if if they do and, and and what results and come out of that investigation um and i suppose uh yeah, community groups will just continue to hold hold them to account and continue to take action until we see protection of our forests. And yeah, I just am am hopeful that yeah that we can win this fight and bring that and bring that transition forward forward and protect our forests for good. Definitely. Well, we're nearly running out of time, Chris. But if there are listeners who want to find out more about this or perhaps join the fight, uh, where would you recommend that they go? People are welcome to to have a look at look at Gecko's website and and get in touch with us through through there. If, if people are wanting to connect with other other environment groups, that some of the the ones that I've mentioned, um, yeah, we can we can connect people as well as well with their local environment groups. But but yeah, you can also head to our website, which is gecko dot org dot au. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us on breakfast this morning. We'd love to chat with you again, maybe later down the track to see what has you know come out of these investigations. But again, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Chris Ringer there talking with Fung. Hey, and it's great that we have Caitlin in the studio for 3CR Monday Breakfast. Caitlin, how are you doing? I'm going along really, really well indeed. As I turn your mic up on a Monday morning, perhaps it's a a little bit like the echoes of the weekend just starting to to roar and to to rev up a little bit. You had a good one and you also had a birthday as well. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I had a bit of a dinner last night. It was really lovely. Um, Yeah, nice to sort of see my family in my house for the first time this year. So, 
Yeah, it's the, delightful. That's really, really good. And they'll be here for Christmas as well too over this period of time, over the festive break. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So for anyone who is interested about that interview that Fung did with Chris Seringa, do check out the Gecko website. That's the Gungera Environment Centre, www.gecko.org.au. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. And right now it's Tranquilize from Telenova.
You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. That was Tranquilized by Telenova. Hope you're having a absolutely wonderful morning. It is 7.35 a.m. So coming up on the rest of the show today, hoping to speak with um, both Sarah Roberts from the NTEU about all things relating to wage theft and then also to talking um, with um, Anna from uh, RMIT University. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast and hope you're enjoying the day with a top of 27 degrees. Celebrate a family-friendly New Year's Eve in Yarra. Join us at Edinburgh Gardens North Fitzroy and Barclay Gardens in Richmond for kids' games, sports competitions, lighting installations, relaxed live music and an outdoor cinema. This free, family-friendly event kicks off at both parks at 12 midday. Bring a picnic and ring in the new year with family and friends. Check out the full program at yarracity.vic.gov.au. And remember, City of Yarra Park streets and public spaces are alcohol-free on New Year's Eve. The City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. You're on Monday 3CR Breakfast. My name is Caitlin and this morning we are joined by Professor Anna Hickey-Moody from RMIT University. Anna is a professor in media and communication and is one of the leaders in the fight to protect the future of funding for arts and humanities research in Australia. Anna, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me on this morning, Caitlin. I am so happy to uh, to hear from you. So we heard, I think, last week that there were some changes to the way that funding for university research was going to be organised. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I'd love to. I thought I might start by explaining um, how university research has been funded, because I think a lot of uh, taxpayers and voters might not understand university research funding. Yep. So there is a body called the Australian Research Council, and that has research priority areas that it funds. So it will fund research into food, soil and water, mm. transport, cyber security, emergency, resources, and sorry, energy, okay. resources, advanced manufacturing and environmental change and health. So those areas are all the research funding that is available to Australian researchers. So if you think about things like education... Mm-hmm. or, um, you know, uh, support for any arts or social sciences research, they have to come into those research priority areas. Mm. Um, and those research priority areas broadly are being changed to look at uh, manufacturing. So 70% of all Australian research will need to be directed towards resources technology, mm-hmm. critical minerals processing, food and beverages... Medical products, recycling and clean energy, and defence. Mm-hmm. So that that's quite narrow. So if you're thinking about all Australian university funding going into more than half, seventy percent of all, all all research funding going into those areas, they are not only they're schemes that don't support things like education, um, 
arts, social sciences, humanities research, but there are also schemes that already have other funding sources available to them. Mm-hmm. So there are big defence um, research schemes. There are big food and beverage um, research schemes that sort of support rural and rural research and um, food and beverage uh, understanding how to market and develop food and beverages. Yeah. Um, and there's a very big Australian renewable energy scheme. So those those schemes are kind of doubling up. Right. And so what does that mean for the kinds of research that people who work in arts and humanities will be able to do? It, well, it means there won't be research funding available to them. Mm. And on the, and it also means it, it's actually bigger than that. It means that um, there, won't, there won't be any what's called blue sky research funding, really, because most mm. of the blue sky research funding is being moved out of the Discovery Program scheme, which is which is sort of pure invention, and it's being moved into a linkage program scheme, which is which has those manufacturing research priority areas. And so, mm-hmm. Blue Sky Research is much bigger than arts and humanities and education mm-hmm. research. It's also that's how mRNA was invented. It's how Wi-Fi was invented. A lot of the you know the genome sequencing, monoclonal antibodies. Some of the, the, the core developments that we rely on, like the way that we've come up with the COVID vaccine, for example, mm. was all developed through Blue Sky Research. So that's research that doesn't have a, a clear end date. Mm-hmm. And you know, for example, that you're understanding more about how to make um, mRNA respond, for example, but you're not exactly sure when you're going to be able to come up with a vaccine. You're just... You're learning through doing it. It's a trial and error process. Mm-hmm. And so by taking money away from that scheme and moving it into outcomes-focused... I mean, research is already outcomes-focused, but mm. the way that they're restructuring the grant system is to make it to make grants um, fundable because they can be patented and funded funded because they're going to make knowledge that can be trademarked. And so... That introduces a whole other set of questions around what research is, why we research, and it also means there won't be scope for blue sky research. That is our most valuable and innovative research. So when we're taking that away from Australia, we're also taking away the opportunity for young people to go to university mm-hmm. to learn from experts that are researching in a whole range of areas, and that it's going to impact not only our whole culture and what we can learn, but what children can be when they grow up. And I think that that is all happening at a time of year when everyone's trying not to catch COVID from, um, you know, Christmas shopping and everyone's exhausted. Mm. And a lot of people probably don't know what's happening. That's a really good point, Anna. And I think that um, it's something that our listeners would be very concerned about, that there would be... Less, there are fewer resources available for people to do this kind of really innovative thinking that has, in some ways, kept us kept us safe this year. Um, things like vaccines have been developed, like you said, through this kind of research. Excuse me, through this kind of research. So, what could uh, the listeners do if they wanted to learn more about this issue and to raise their concerns about what's happening with this funding? I think that if you could write to your local MP, that would be fantastic. So Stuart Roberts 
is the Acting Minister for Education and Youth at the moment. And Stuart um, made these changes or proposed these changes last week. So you can see his letter to the former uh, CEO of the Australian Research Council, Sue Thomas, on the Australian Research Council website, um, which is arc.gov.au. And if you could write to your MP to ask um, for these changes to be reversed or strongly opposed, I think that would be fantastic. And I think people need to remember that funding for research not only makes our futures, but it flows into the courses that are available for people to study for their kids' career options. And, you know, does Australia really want... Do 70% of our kids want to study manufacturing? That's sort of what we're looking at. That is an excellent question. Um, I know that I've certainly benefited from having the expertise of people who've done really innovative, very blue sky thinking kind of research. And I would be so sad to see that disappear in Australian universities. Anna, is there anything else you would like to add before we before we say goodbye about about this issue? Um, Please get in contact with your MP. And I think that the more we can learn about it, it's no one's talking about it because there are, you know, we're in the middle of a national international pandemic. Mm-hmm. But I think we're going to come out the other side of the international pandemic with a, a devastated higher education system, and everyone's going to be studying, their, sending their kids to study in Singapore, and wishing that you know the news had covered some of this stuff while it was happening. Mm. Well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Anna Hickey Moody from RMIT, thank you so much for joining us on Three CR this morning. Me. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Got questions about COVID-19? Drummond Street Services, Queer Space and Queer Space Youth have answers. The team at Drummond Street has partnered with community organisations across Victoria to hear from multicultural LGBTIQ plus people about their COVID-19 questions and concerns. You can now access back sheets and videos that directly address community concerns about COVID-19 and provide accurate information about vaccines and keeping safe during COVID. Head to cfre.org.au forward slash LGBTIQ COVID to find out more and access resources in languages including Arabic, Mandarin, Farsi, Tamil, French, Spanish, Japanese, Malay, plus English and Easy English. That's cfre.org.au forward slash LGBTIQ COVID. Drummond Street Services. Queer Space and Queer Space Youth, keeping multicultural LGBTIQ plus community safe during COVID. A 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 
3CR Monday breakfast. Hope you're having a good morning. My name's Evan, and you're also joined with Caitlin as well, too. Before that little break, you just heard from Anna Hickey Moody talking all things around ARC changes and what this means for the higher education sector. Staying on the theme of higher education, we now have Sarah Roberts on the line. So last week, it was announced that thousands of La Trobe University employees will be back paid more than $3.5 million dollars following a long-running campaign by the National Tertiary Education Union. The NTU, NTEU has repeatedly raised concerns over wage theft perpetrated against casual academic and professional staff at La Trobe University since September 2020. And just recently, La Trobe University admitted it breached its enterprise agreement and statutory obligations over the past six years. NTEU Vision, uh, Victoria Division Assistant Secretary Sarah Roberts, you're on the line there. Thanks very much for joining us on 3CR Monday Breakfast. You must be pretty pleased about this result. Well, I guess it's always good to have um, money that's, pay, that's owed to people paid back, $3.5 million. But um, I think it, what it shows is that uh, the system is broken. So, so really, none of us should have been in this place in the first place. And the casual academic and professional staff at La Trobe really shouldn't have had this $3.5 million stolen from them first place. So yes, we're pleased that there's a win uh, and, you know, continuing to making to, to make wins in that space, but um, it really just shows that the system is broken and it's built on, on wage theft from casual employees in particular. Really keen to understand some of those concerns a little better as well and, and chat through that with you, but just staying on La Trobe University first, can you explain the extent of wage theft and the nature of wage theft that did occur at La Trobe University? Yeah, sure. So um, at La Trobe University, um, like at many universities, people have been raising issues of wage theft. Our members have been raising issues of wage theft um, going back to September 2020. It's been going on for longer than that, but, you know, people had confidence to start raising it at around that time. Um, one of the key things that they've been doing there is uh, failing to pay the minimum call-out for professional academic staff. So, um, when academic, sorry, sorry, professional staff. So when professional staff come onto campus or over COVID, when they come to do their um, their work online, they get paid a three-hour minimum call-out for that for doing that work because um, otherwise, you, you know, there's not much point coming onto campus for just doing delivering one hour of work. Um, so there's a three-hour minimum, which usually means that people are engaged to do three hours. Um, but La Trobe hasn't been paying that full amount, and they've been cutting corners. Um, there's a couple of other areas that they've been going into as well, but but really the wage theft that happens at La Trobe and, and that happens across the country, we find, is it, it, it happens at the coalface where there are... Um, and there's so much incentive on people who are engaged, doing the, you know, day-to-day engagement of casual academic and professional staff, which is usually academic, um, you know, mid-range academic staff um, in, at the faculty department level... Um, there's so much pressure on them to meet budget that they come up with, or, or, and people at the local area, come up with um, lots of different and new ways to, to steal money from casuals, with, and sometimes without even knowing it because they're not human resources professionals. Um, 
And this, the, the pressure on them comes from higher up the chain because they're given their, their um, budgetary packet that they have to manage, um, which is usually woefully inadequate to actually pay people what they're entitled to be paid. Um, so at La Trobe, that came up in lots of different ways. Um, and KPMG actually, to their credit, La Trobe realised that they had a problem and um, flicked it off to KPMG uh, to investigate and have a uh, have a look in detail at what they could see was was happening, uh, and that report came back and said yes, indeed, there were many different areas in which um, La Trobe had not been doing the right thing, and that internal investigation has then led to to uh, together with also the union campaign and the additional pressure of the Fair Work Ombudsman also investigating has led to them making this payment. But we'd say there's probably a lot more to it than that, and in particular the KPMG report did not, um, and, and what Latrobe has just admitted to, didn't go to um, the main area of wage theft that we say is going on, which is the payment of a piece rate for academic uh, casual staff who are, when they're doing their marking of exams and essays, instead of being uh, paid by the hour for how long that work takes, they're being paid by um, by essay or by exam, um, it, which is usually, again, a woefully inadequate way of paying because it takes a lot longer uh, to do the work than the university is expecting by applying a piece race. So we think there's a lot more to come out of it in, in the area. So thinking about that and thinking about what lies ahead, it's great that these wages have been repaid, but it doesn't sound as though you're confident that some of the systemic challenges that have led to this wage theft happening in the first place really have been addressed in the way that you would like? Yeah, no, I think that's fair, and it's um, fair across the system. I mean, just to indicate and to paint the picture out, the Latrobe's um, said that it's going to back pay, uh, and it has back paid $3.5 million to academic professional staff casuals. But adding into that, we um, a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, we uh, RMIT made an admission of a $10 million debt to casual academic employees. Uh, the University of Melbourne has uh, owed $9.5 million to its casual academic employees. Uh, and Monash University has agreed that it owes its casual academic employees $8.6 million. And the Fair Work Ombudsman is investigating all those institutions in Victoria uh, and also instituting, uh, investigating 14 uh, universities nationwide. So... Um, so there's a problem, uh, and it's not just at those institutions. And the problem stems from uh, the fact that you have universities at the highest level making their um, legally enforceable collective agreements with the union, which all of them do. So they reach these binding collective agreements, but then don't invest sufficiently in the enforcement and compliance with those agreements uh, and just simply expect that everything will be fine um, by... Uh, by giving every uh, faculty, department and school it's what they say is a packet of money that they have to manage under budget and not training the local people in terms of human resources management and how to comply with the collective agreement. And they don't take responsibility or provide the, uh, the funding to make sure that compliance actually happens. So if there's a very strong incentive on people to cut corners and to the easiest way to cut what, cut costs is to cut them from casual employees because uh, casuals being the most insecurely employed people in the country uh, are the least likely to bar up and stick their head over the parapet if they realise that they're not being paid appropriately because 
their future is in the hands of the person who they're complaining to. Uh, and so what you see is that casuals uh, usually accept this. Uh, and to their credit and um, to the unions, I suppose, we've managed to get to a point from running this campaign where we've built up a lot more courage than we've previously had across the community uh, in the union and in the in, at La Trobe and at Melbourne and, and at RMIT uh, and at Monash. And we've run these campaigns and people have realised that their system is broken and if they stand up, they can do something about it. There would be thousands upon thousands of individuals working in a casual arrangement at universities across Australia. And I suggest being 3CR, there's probably a number of casual academics listening to this show today. What advice would you give to those listeners and to those workers who have found themselves in situations where they're concern about whether or not they're being paid, what they're entitled to, um, and seeking support and assistance on this front? Mm. Well, obviously, join your union. Um, The union's running campaigns on this at every institution across the country, in Victoria, at every institution. Um, And there's never a better time to put your hand up and say there's a problem here because there are people who know about it and you can get cover by talking with your colleagues and talking with your union. So if you talk to the union, find out where they, what, what's happening with the campaign on your campus, um, get together with the other casuals in your area and, um, and in, across the institution to talk about the instances of wage theft because, mark my words, there'll be, there'll be some everywhere because <laughs> the system's the same everywhere. No-one's unique and special. Um, and get together that way. And that way you build you build your courage and you, you get a bit of cover by talking with other people. And the union can then put in a complaint on behalf of everybody um, and, and make sure people get paid that way. I mean, this is, this is part of our campaign is not just to bring, this, bring a spotlight onto it, but we want to make sure everybody gets paid the money that they're owed and not just what they're owed, but also the superannuation that they've missed out on and the interest that they could have earned if that money was in the bank. I mean, for lots of people, this is, this, you know, it, not that we can do this, but this might mean uh, that they, an overseas holiday or it might mean being able to put a, a deposit on a house or, you know, it's a lot of money. There was one, a, an employee um, who I worked with at the University of Melbourne around wage theft who was owed $95,000. That's an you know, extraordinary this, amount of money. Yeah, there are people who, who have lost a lot of money and it's not on. And now's the time to stand up for themselves and to join the union and get together with their other colleagues who are all in the same boat. It can be fought and won, and I think we've shown that at those four institutions, and we're just going to keep on stamping it out. You talked about the example of Melbourne University there, which is where the spotlight was very much last year with respect to wage theft. And this year, it seems as though there's a, I suppose, a a moving spotlight onto Monash University. And in October, um, we had an admission that, as you talked about earlier, $8.6 million in underpayment since 2014. Can you tell me about the situation there and and what lies ahead for, um, for Monash staff? Yeah, so Monash, I mean, every institution, the method of wage theft is different because um, people will use the opportunity that's open to them as to how it happens. At Monash, um, one of the key things that they were doing there and um, potentially they might still be doing is reclassifying the teaching um, or renaming it so that um, a tutorial is paid a particular rate of pay as three hour, um, two hours of preparation and one hour of delivery rate of pay. And... Um, but by reclassifying it as called a practice class, you get out of paying the three-hour rate of pay and just simply pay one hour. And so they were 
doing this process of renaming things so as to avoid having to pay the full rates of pay that were that were um, that were applicable. Um, now also, I think at Monash, reduce just not paying the appropriate rate of pay that's applicable to, to somebody who has a PhD, and various other things there that they've admitted to that they've classified as inadvertent and administrative error. Um, but like at every institution, it's our view that this is a systemic problem and it comes from a failure to invest in compliance. I don't think uh, you can have an $8.6 million mistake um, you know, without there being some knowledge at the highest level that there's a systemic issue. And it's our view from talking to the casuals um, since the admission at Monash, that Monash made voluntarily uh, that there are other forms of ways of theft going on and we intend to prosecute those and make sure that people know about that and make sure every penny gets paid back to those people too. So there's more to be, there'll be more to see at Monash. The campaign's not over there. Sarah, it's been a huge year for you and the NTEU. Congratulations again on the campaign at La Trobe University. Anything fun planned for you personally over the holiday break? I think we all need a break. I mean, the, you know, the COVID has taken its toll, hasn't it? And so just having some respite from Zoom meetings and being able to, you know, refresh and look forward to actually seeing people face-to-face in the new year will be really exciting. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm gearing up for the next round of campaigning. There's uh, four institutions in Victoria who we've uh, we've had a crack out on wage theft and I think we'll, I won't be happy until they've all rolled over. So <laughs> that's my plan. I'll use the holidays to plan for that. Ah, <laughs> yeah, that'll be my break. <laughs> very good. Oh, we appreciate the uh, commitment and solidarity here on 3CR. That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, thanks so much for chatting with us. Thanks a lot, Evan. Cheers. That was Sarah Roberts from the National Tertiary Education Union, the Victorian Division Assistant Secretary. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Here's the Whitlams with I Will Not Go Quietly. Don't believe in rugby league 
the shit. This is 3C, ah, Monday breakfast. That was the Whitlams with I Will Not Go Quietly. And what a fitting song for that last interview that we just had with Sarah Roberts from the National Tertiary Education Union talking about recent success with the Latrobe University wage theft claim, $3.5 million being repaid to staff. There are lots of active campaigns at the moment across the university sector and I have to say, Caitlin, it's a really, really challenging time. If we put together the interview from Anna Hickey-Moody that you just did and the interview from Sarah, this is not a good time for Australian universities and those who love it and those support it, who support it and those who work within it. Absolutely. I mean, I have to admit I have a vested interest because I am a yeah, final year PhD student and um, preparing to submit and potentially, if there's a job for me, go into the academy. But um I think one of the biggest problems that we have is the there's a real there's a real a sort of animosity towards the university sector in general I think from government and we saw that during the pandemic when they changed the rules I think two or three times to avoid paying the job keeper subsidies to universities apart from a couple of private universities which were which were funded and then the changes to the to research and wage theft, it means that there's, re- like you said to Sarah, there's some real systemic problems that um, that are occurring, and these these changes have real world impacts, not just on, not just for students, but also for for staff as well. Sarah was just saying that there was a, a wait, there have been wage theft claims at a number of universities, and I know that I was a beneficiary of one of those claims from the University of Melbourne, and it really was a life changing event. It, you know, validated years of experiences that I'd had in marking essays for weeks on end, and then feeling like I wasn't, I, I, the amount the amount I was being paid didn't match how exhausted I felt at the end of it. And to hear that that was actually because I was doing twice as much work as I thought I was, was incredibly validating. So I think that these changes and these campaigns are just so important. And it's not just about I think, you know, there's sometimes an impression that it's maybe there's some, you know, 
high-minded, hoity-toity academics just lining their pockets to go and read books for a couple of years. But it really is about making sure that we are at the forefront of research in all areas, not not in just areas like manufacturing, which are absolutely crucial and very, very important. But we need that kind of capacity across the sector. Absolutely. We need that capacity across all sorts of different areas. And when thinking about wage theft as well, too, that's a problem that exists across faculties, across um, Mm. um, divisional areas. And so regardless of whether you're connected with the sciences or connected with humanities or connected with manufacturing or commerce, you still have staff who are being exploited. And it Mm. just seems that there's a fundamental need for a real rethink as to how universities value, A, their staff, and, and B, thinking about investment priorities as well too, because yes, there have been significant challenges over the pandemic with respect to how much mm, money those universities would raise from tuition. But we're not talking about um, um, poor services that are running on the smell of an oily rag at all. Absolutely not, no. And I think that those... That, that I think that's what I mean when I say sort of systemic systemic problems. I think if you rely on high tuition fees and then an event happens like a pandemic and then you don't have any stu- students can't attend, mm. especially from overseas, then there are real problems with you know where that where that money comes from in order to do groundbreaking research that keeps Australia in a really strong. Uh, I guess, intellectual position. You know, we have some of the best and most amazing, and we talk to them here, we talk to them all the time on 3CR, and I think that to see that funding disappear and to see those people have to shift, either shift their research or go overseas, because that's the alternative, really. If there isn't an opportunity to do research here, people will people will leave. Absolutely. It's the case with all sorts of areas of employment that people are finding as though the work that they do will result in them being exploited, to being underpaid, Mm. to not being recognised, to having to, to work in really, really adverse conditions. Well, what happens, as you say, you either move overseas or you move into a different area and industry. And you really, we know how much stems from um, university environments when it comes to uh, new initiatives and and innovations uh, and ideas uh, and concepts that are born from multiple, multiple areas of of knowledge. And it's a university environment that really helps to to foster that. And what a shame to, to lose those individuals to other areas where they might not have the same opportunities to collaborate or to um, really purposefully um, uh, embark on projects that can have so much social good. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that those, yeah, those researchers just need, they need our support. I've just, if you go to uh, my Twitter account, which is at Caitlin Anthony, you can see that I've tweeted the link to where you can read the minister's letter to the eight to the Australian Research Council, and then you can find a link as well to write to your local MP. And I would really encourage people to do that because I think that it's it's easy to overlook this kind of this kind of uh, you know end of year. Everyone's exhausted. Nobody really can be bothered doing anything. I know that I can't, but 
yeah, seeing those seeing those those changes kind of slide in just towards the end of the year when people are really exhausted and it's such they're such dodgy tactics, I think. And I think we just need to be on our toes, calling them out, making sure that we're keeping people accountable. This is 3CR Breakfast with Evan and Caitlin. Here's Say It by Thandie Phoenix. You're here, so hear me out. Just slow down. Give a little something. The clock is going round. I hold out. Cause I'm feeling something. This is Monday Breakfast. You're listening to 3CR. It is 8.15am and that was Thandie Phoenix with Say It. 
Hope you're having a beautiful Monday morning in the last week before the holiday season kicks off in absolute earnest. Um, It's quarter past eight. It's a top of 27 degrees today. It's summery times. And these summer holidays, the Royal Botanic Gardens is the place to be. Whatever your age and regardless of whether you have the family in tow, the gardens will be home to a range of incredible exhibitions and events. I'm joined by Cara Ward, creative producer and involved in special projects at the Royal Botanic Gardens. What an exciting time we have ahead, Cara. Yes, we do have an... Yeah, we're very much looking forward to summer. Oh, this is this is good to hear. And there are a whole range of different exhibitions and instalments and uh, and also um, fun times to be had by people who are going to the Botanic Gardens over the next month or so. But I want to start with an, an absolute old favourite of mine. I was stoked to see that the Wind in the Willows is still up and running. And uh, it's notched up more than 35 seasons. Is that right? That's right. That is indeed. Yes, Wind in the Willows by the Australian Shakespeare Company is... I think it's become a wonderful tradition for families. I have some friends in their, in their 50s that still go. In their 50s. I think I'm going to go again this year. It's probably been a good 30 years since I was last at the Wind and the Willows and just remember getting separated into the badger groups and the moles and the hares and people were separated by mobility perhaps and it was was a lot of fun. It's a a hoot with music and and song and and a great story. Indeed, yeah. And of course with the beautiful backdrop of the gardens, they have their sets on some of the um, most beautiful lawns so yeah, it is. A, I think that one is a real treat. And that one there's a, a production by the Australian Shakespeare Company. But going from Toad and Mole, we, they then join the likes of Ai Weiwei and Refi Anadol with Seeing the Invisible. This looks like a, right. a really wonderful international experience in a very quintessential part of Melbourne. It's an augmented reality exhibition. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, that's right. Yes, it's... Um it is. It's a wonderful contemporary art exhibition in the garden. So the garden's very much as gallery. It's on at both Melbourne Gardens and Cranbourn. And how it works is that you download an app onto your smartphone and then it is GPS-driven, so you have to be on site to experience it. And you follow, you follow a, a map in the app and as you sort of make your way around, the artworks pop up. There's a few prompts and a few instructions on the, on the app and when you get close to it, you have to, you're in what's called the artwork zone and then you trigger it and an artwork pops up in front of you and you view the artwork on your phone but in the setting. So uh, AR technology, is, as, as it's um, referenced, it enhances or augments your experience of the world around you. So it's, I think, you know, for those that are into Pokemon, it's that same, same type of technology. But, yeah, uh, Seeing Invisible is an extraordinary um, contemporary art exhibition with 13 artists, as you said, one of them being Ai Weiwei. And they're all responding to nature and the environment and sustainability, exploring the connections between art and technology and nature. So they're really beautiful. Most of them have a soundtrack, so we encourage you to bring headphones and there's 13 of them dotted throughout the garden. Yeah, so it's going to be really good. And for, for the school holidays, we've devised a family's guide that will be available just um, just before Christmas. And in that guide, it sort of gives uh, an explanation of, of the art, of what the artist's concept might have been for each one. And then it has some little prompts that 
asking you to sort of look at the artwork or the garden settings, um, perhaps a little activity to do at home that is related to it, and then a, a call to action to sort of connect and uh, care more for nature. So that is our big, our big sort of, if you like, the headline over summer is seeing the invisible. And it's a huge, huge piece of work. Tell, I mean, it must be, it must have been quite an effort, really yeah. looking at how to best place the different um, pieces of work across the garden and, and matching up all of the coordinates. That mixture yeah. of technology versus curatorship, that would not have been an easy feat. Yes, you're right. It was. It was a lot of work. Uh, really, really quite interesting. And, um, you know, lots of lots of considerations, of course, for augmented reality as well. We had to really we had to think about, the, you know, even the surface of the ground because you do get very much absorbed into it. So I think if we were on, we, you know, couldn't be near the lake because someone might walk into it <laughs> or on a hill, those sorts of things. Uh, so, yeah, we did. There are lots of different considerations, but it was very fun. And and actually it's really great seeing the exhibition across both gardens because, um, of course, Melbourne and Cranbourne Gardens are incredibly different. And seeing how the artwork sits in those two locations is um, is very is really 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 wonderful to see to see the differences I can and how they that. take on a whole different life when you're in the yeah the other space. What's your favourite part of being immersed in the seeing the invisible um, experience? So tell me about what you really love about connecting with that. I think the um, for me, I, I hadn't really uh, encountered augmented reality too often. And it is that um, it is. It's quite joyful, actually, just seeing it appear on your phone and then seeing different elements and sort of staying with them for a few. You know, I think each of them has like a ten-minute loop. But the longer you stay with some of them, the more you see and the more things you find. So it's really, uh, it's really great to sort of. There's, you know, in some of them, I don't know maybe giving some away, but one of them explodes. But the longer that you sort of say within all of the different fragments, you sort of see a butterfly or a bee or, you know, so it's really, uh, the technology, is, it's fascinating. There's another one that blows in the blows in the wind and has a shadow that really kind of messes with you. You're like, hang on, is the wind moving that? What's happening? <laughs> it's sort of really, um, yeah, so it's... it's those sorts of things. I, I am enjoying at the moment watching other people engage with this in the gardens because, of course, you look quite mad looking at your phone and walking around in a circle and no one can see what you're looking at. Absolutely. <laughs> invisible. That oh, it's um, That's yeah, a treat. A real, a real treat. And um, yeah. so for people who are wanting to experience seeing the invisible, you need your phone and you're recommending headphones as well too. That's right, yes. And, that, I and that's it? That's, that's all you need? Well, yeah, you, you need a fully charged phone. Mm-hmm. And I actually suggest going to our webpage, which is rbg.vic.gov.au, to re- have a look on the Seeing the Invisible page. There's a little instructional video if you're not, you know, not of the most tech savvy. It might help you. It is. It, it just depends on, you know, how much you've used these sorts of things and how familiar you are with apps. But we've, we're trying to make this accessible for everyone, no matter where you are on the spectrum of technology usage. Uh, yeah, so you just need those things. If you don't have, you need a fairly up-to-date phone. Uh, and if you don't have one, we have some that you can borrow at the visitor centres at both sites as well. 
So they're free to borrow. The exhibition itself is free. Family site is free. You know, we've really made a point of, as I say, trying to make this as accessible to all as possible. So yeah, that's I, wonderful um, news. It is really great. It is. Um, it's it's a workout. There's 13 different ones. So it's about a two-kilometre route. But I guess I I would say you know if you're going with children, you, it'd be two lots of activities because you could go and do a half in a day and then come back another day and do the other half. That sounds like a, a very, very sensible plan. Yeah. I'm also excited about Sonica Botanica, which is an immersive yeah. audio experience by Melbourne sound artist Patrick Cronin. There were promised an adventure that combines stories, natural sounds and atmospheric music. That's right, yes. So there's, uh, there's two episodes of Sonica Botanica that exist thus far. Uh, the first one is set in and around the Arid Garden in Melbourne and the second one is around Oak Lawn and then... Episode three is about to drop, which is about the spectacular sensorial power of plants. And these these audio works are really beautiful. They're designed to be listened to in place. So in those those places that I just uh, described, there's QR codes there. You scan them on your phone. Again, have your headphones and sit and listen in place to the... There's a combination of interviews as well. So Patrick interviews, um, depending on which space it's in. Uh, a lot of the curatorial staff from the gardens feature and other other people that are perhaps experts in that space, and then just perhaps everyday people or children that have a comment, comment on it. And they're really, really beautiful experiences to help you um, learn more and connect with those particular areas. What a treat. Cara Ward, yeah. thank you so much for joining us this morning on 3CR Monday Breakfast. There's a lot that's happening at the Royal Botanic Gardens, and um, for people who want to find more information, just check, it's a matter of checking out the website. That's right. Yep. Just head to the website. Also follow us on uh, social media as well. But yeah, the website has all those programs that I've just mentioned. And um, there's another great one called Flora and the Baron as well that I have to give a quick plug to, which is a narrative audio tour. So yeah, check that one out too. Sounds really good. Cara Ward, thanks so much for your time this morning and, and you have a great holidays yourself. Thank you very much, Evan, and to you. That was Cara Ward. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast, and it also happens to be our last show for the year as well, too, our last normal show. We have a bit of summer programming for you next week. I'll be back uh, in the... Um, in the seat, first week of January, and Caitlin will come along in the second week of January, so mm-hmm. it won't be too much of a pause, but what a year it has been, Caitlin. It feels... I think this year has felt twice as long and twice as quick as a regular year, to be honest. How have you found it? Twice as long and twice as quick. Yeah, I agree with that. The years, in my mind, I think it's had all sorts of different rhythms. It started off with that energy and hopefulness. I think Mm -hmm. about where I was in March and April enjoying the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and things were just full of life and full of buzz and it was a bit of a sense of people almost seeing the city again through new eyes after Mm -hmm. experiencing the lockdown of 2020. And then this year, from that point on, from about May or June, it has just felt like there's the year has been wrung out uh, and, and it's gone quickly. And uh, it's also, and it also felt like the world shrank a lot too, at least from a Melbourne perspective. Absolutely. Oh yeah, it, the world got my world certainly got a lot smaller, and I am just looking forward to a, a bit of a rest at the at the end of the year and the into the beginning of into the beginning of next year. I um, yeah, I think that you know those 
those interviews that we did this morning have really, I think, shown that there's um, there's still some there's still some big stuff happening in the world. Still some things to be really um, aware of and to keep and to keep an eye on that are trying to sort of sneak in as well. And I'm just reading this morning in the Age that Labour have the Labour Party have been challenged by the coalition to uh, to have a stance on their anti trolling legislation so i think that there are some really big some really big changes happening um on a national level that uh, will continue into into next year but i do i do remember the the beginning of the beginning of this year felt a bit more hopeful but yeah i think we're i think we're coming melbourne at least is coming out of this year feeling quite feeling quite cautious yeah, cautious, I think, is a, is a really good way to describe it, especially when we think about where we started the show off today and the Omicron variant mm. and how that could further shape people's experiences. And we already have countries in Europe that are going to go back into lockdown as well, mm-hmm. too, um, that potential for further restrictions. And then also, as you were saying, what's the underlying political response that's attached to it? And that sense of, I think, in my mind, having a real lack of willingness, particularly amongst uh, within the Australian Labor Party, to engage with big progressive ideas, to put together a, a bold platform that could actually learn from what we've endured and what the world has you know, done well, what we've trialled with. But it seems as though there's been a, um, an absolute abandonment of boldness. Quite possibly, yes. And I was actually talking about this with a friend yesterday, and I think that we were both feeling fairly encouraged by the uh, by the the rise of some independents uh, running running next year, and that that might hopefully swing things in a more progressive direction. Uh, but we we hope we can only hope, I suppose. That's right. Your plans for the next week? So uh, family, oh. relaxing, bit of downtime. <laughs> yeah, lying face down. I think for as <laughs> much as I possibly can. Yeah, I think just staying staying still, uh, hanging out with some friends and family, and I guess yeah, just recharging before we go back into another year. What are your plans? Uh, going to have a. A lot of relaxing, um, especially in January, but in between Christmas and New Year, looking forward to climbing Mount Bogong, so the oh, highest wow. mountain in Victoria. That's uh, hopefully a good metaphor to end the year on. And, I hope uh, so. And brings a bit of exhilaration. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Just for all the listeners out there, there's an online event tonight, Standing with West Papua, as we look to continue to rally the cause to support self-determination for all West Papuans. People who are interested in that uh, go to the university of Wollongong website eurow.edu.au Thanks so much for your company Have a wonderful Christmas and an excellent new year You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia For more information go to allthews.3cr.org.au